Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Content warning. Beyond the fact that this is a story about murder, the suspects and investigators use strong language. Sometimes I feel silly worrying about language when telling a story about murder, but I also don't want to perpetuate the same dehumanizing terminology that helps lead to someone justifying murder. As such, I'll bleep out some of the harshest language. Kenneth Bianchi had a simple explanation for the reason he and his cousin, Angelo Bono, killed 10 Los Angeles women together in the late 1970s. He said, some bitches deserve to die. I fucking killed those broads. This is Bianchi talking to a psychologist named John G. Watkins. At least, it looks like it's Bianchi talking, but the person saying the words insists his name is Steve and that he and Kenny Bianchi share a body, though they're two entirely different people. Did you realize that it was right or wrong to kill him? Which way did you think it was? It wasn't fucking wrong. Why is it wrong to get rid of some fucking Why did you think it was right? Because it makes the world a better place to live in. Watkins was no lightweight in this field. He had some 30 years of experience, much of it in the field of dissociative reaction, which includes amnesia and multiple personalities. He was convinced that Kenny Bianchi had more than one persona living inside his body. And while that persona, the guy named Steve, readily admitted to killing 10 women with his cousin, plus two other women on his own, this posed a huge legal dilemma because Steve hadn't been charged with any crimes at all. Only Kenny had. And if Dr. Watkins was right about his patient, Kenny had no idea what Steve had been up to. Now, if you listen to part one of this Crimes of the Centuries two-parter, you've got a pretty good idea. Bianchi had been arrested in connection with the two solo killings, which he had committed in the state of Washington after his cousin threatened to kill him if he didn't leave town. In short, Bono had gotten frustrated working with his far less detail-oriented partner in crime and wanted to take a break to lessen the heat on their now infamous killing spree, dubbed in the newspapers as the Hillside Stranglings. There was plenty of circumstantial evidence tying Bianchi to several of the murders, and now cops had Bianchi confessing to the crimes too. Except it wasn't Bianchi confessing, it was his alter ego Steve. And if that was the case, how on earth could a jury find Kenny guilty for crimes that he himself didn't really commit? And more than that, how could his cousin Angelo Bono even be charged when the only evidence against him was Steve's word? A few years before Kenny Bianchi and Angelo Bono began their killing spree, the notion that a person might be found not guilty of a crime because it was committed by another personality housed in the same body would have seemed absurd. 
It wasn't that no one had heard of multiple personality disorder, quite the contrary. That's largely thanks to the hugely popular 1973 book Sybil, which purported to detail the many personalities of a woman now known to be Shirley Mason. That book was translated into a two-part TV movie starring Sally Field and Joanne Woodward. It's worth noting that Joanne Woodward, who played the psychiatrist in Sybil, had previously played a patient similar to Sybil in the 1957 movie The Three Faces of Eve. Woodward won an Oscar for that portrayal. Nearly 20 years later, Sally Field would win an Emmy for hers. All this is to say that pop culture had made people quite aware of what doctors nowadays call dissociative identity disorder, a rare condition in which someone is diagnosed as having at least two distinctive personalities from a documentary. In a true multiple personality, there are completely separate personalities within the same body. There may be two or three or four or more. Each one has its own identity. Each one has its own behaviors, its mannerisms, its uh, speech. And uh, when one is out, uh, it may be completely unaware of the existence of the others. Having the condition didn't mean all that much in legal terms. To be not guilty of something because of your mental health, aka by reason of insanity, you can't just be diagnosed with some disorder or another. It's not about thinking you're God or being psychotic or believing you can control people with your mind. None of that, even if it's 100% genuine on your patient's part, counts because the legal definition of insanity generally is super narrow. You simply can't have known right from wrong when you committed the crime. That's how it had always been. But then, in 1977, a criminal case came along and changed everything. For now, what's important to understand is that a young man named Billy Milligan was arrested on charges he had robbed and raped three women at gunpoint. Milligan's highly publicized and controversial case ultimately marked the first time that anyone had been found not guilty of a crime based on a multiple personality disorder diagnosis. He was acquitted of his crimes and institutionalized, where doctors in Athens, Ohio, tried to fuse his 24 different personalities into one whole, a unified Billy. If you think the Milligan case sounds like its own episode of Crimes of the Centuries, I agree. And so we'll look at the details of it next episode. Now, there is some overlap between the childhood reports about Kenny Bianchi and those of Billy Milligan. Both claim that when they were boys, they had endured abuse. Milligan at the hands of his stepfather, and though that man denied the allegations, some of the accounts were substantiated by friends and family members. Bianchi said his abuse was from his mother. Both Milligan and Bianchi also shared a tendency to sort of mentally disappear in a trance-like state for hours at a time. As mentioned last episode, Bianchi was even diagnosed with petite mal, or partial seizures, because of it. Both Milligan and Bianchi also had dramatic fits of sometimes inexplicable rage and were accused of pathologically lying, which isn't unusual in dissociative disorders because the various personalities don't always know what the others are doing, so when they're later told, hey, you did something, they legitimately say, nuh-uh, no I didn't which can seem like a lie if you actually saw that person doing the thing you were trying to get them to admit they'd done. It's gaslighting on steroids. 
Those overlaps might well have been what prompted Dr. John Watkins to wonder if Kenny Bianchi was another Billy Milligan-type case. To find out, he did something that was fairly common back in those days during criminal investigations. He used hypnosis on Bianchi. In this old audio, you hear what Watkins describes as the emergence of Steve, followed by Watkins describing the chat with a journalist. Hi. Hi. Are you Ken? Do I look like Ken? Well, no. Do you know who I am? Sure, I know you are. Okay. Uh, you're okay. You're a little disturbed with me. So what? Okay. We just understand each other, don't we? Okay. I don't like you. I don't like you at all. Why don't you like me again? I'm proud of you. It isn't Ken, is it? No, it's not. It's Steve. Oh, okay, Steve. This entity emerged. Uh, uh, when I asked him who was Ken, he said, no, it's Steve. I then talked to Steve about uh, his situation. He kept talking about how he hated that turkey, meaning Ken, and um, how uh, he was fooling that turkey. He also began to talk about the murders, said that he had conducted the murders, uh, that Ken didn't know anything about it, and uh, he laughed very heartily as he described how Ken would lose a tremendous amount of time. That was a little hard to follow. The gist was this. Steve, the alternate personality, kind of hated Ken. He thought Ken was a dork and a loser and a turkey. And when Steve met Angelo Bono, the two clicked. Here Angelo was, hooking up with one woman after another, not being so wussy as to care about other people's feelings, taking whatever he wanted. And they were peas in a pod. Steve felt Ken was a drag on this threesome and wanted to ditch him. In other words, Ken's altar wanted him dead. Not just psychologically, either. Hey, man, it doesn't bother me any. You know, I told you, killing a broad doesn't make any difference to me. Killing any fucking buddy doesn't make any difference. Maybe you didn't kill any of those. I don't know. Oh, hey, no, wrong, man. Hey, I killed a couple of these. Which one? I'm going to do you a favor. Hey, borrow your script here, okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'll do you a favor okay. so, so that you don't get lost along the way. Okay, okay. all right. <laughs> it's real easy. Yeah. What you understand is this one I killed. These two I don't know about. This one I don't know about. This one I killed. This was the first one I killed. Yeah. He began marking his kills with X's. As for Angelo's kills... Angelo, uh, Angelo will be a cross, okay? I'll make it nice and easy. Now, as I mentioned, this discussion was during a supposed hypnosis session. Before you poo-poo it entirely based on that alone, know that in the 1970s, using hypnosis wasn't unusual, and not just by psychologists and psychiatrists. The cops investigating the hillside stranglings, in fact, used hypnosis on several of their witnesses. It was pretty common at the time. It would be during the trial phase of this case that legal precedent would put a crimp in its use. I'll talk about that more later, but for now, just know that the act of hypnotizing Bianchi wasn't in and of itself problematic to the detectives on the case. Detective Dudley Varney of the LA Police Department had seen hypnosis sessions many times and generally didn't discount what was uncovered during them but he found the session tapes he witnessed with Ken Bianchi concerning. I must throw up. Okay, maybe more than concerning. 
I've seen hypnosis before. I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, from that point on, it just looked like a sham. I've still got my notebook where, after viewing the first tapes, I wrote in there, this is bullshit, and underlined it three times. To detectives, Bianchi appeared to be acting, and acting poorly at that. Granted, we can't really know if they would have believed his performance had it conformed with what they wanted to believe. They innately didn't want Bianchi to be a Billy Milligan-type case because, for starters, they might not get a conviction, which they and the community desperately wanted. But also, Milligan's acquittal was intensely controversial. There were people within the mental health community who didn't believe in multiple personalities. So of course there were people in the outside community, and certainly in law enforcement, who straight up believed that Milligan had not only gotten away with his crimes, but that his acquittal would open the floodgates for other degenerates to do the same. If you were caught red-handed committing any crime, they thought, you could simply fake not remembering it and trick some doctor into thinking your alter ego had done the deed, and poof, you were off the hook. Looking at Bianchi's case objectively, it's pretty clear that both sides had blinders on. Here's one of Bianchi's doctors, Ralph Allison, explaining that Bianchi's alter, Steve, appeared around age nine. Ken's mom, Frances, was so overbearing and overprotective that she basically forbade her son from having friends. Then he would repress his feelings of anger toward her, bury them in his mind somewhere, and this then would be walled off from the rest of his mind as a sewer. That's what would later erupt. But at the time he was a child, he would pour more and more of his hostility, resentment toward her into this portion of his mind where he could store it up. Eventually, it would erupt. And when it erupted, these women got killed, raped and then killed. So I wrote a report to to the judge uh, stating my opinion. This is uh, what uh, I said to him, that he is a dual personality and has been so since the age of nine. At that time, he created an alter personality which took the name of Steve Walker. By the way, that Steve's full name was Steve Walker becomes important later. This was while he was hiding under the bed in his bedroom, trying to escape his mother's vicious tongue and punishing hand. As time elapsed, Steve Walker became more and more independent in action and was able to take over the body of Kenneth Bianchi and caused a great deal of trouble in the family and later in the world outside the family. Then it concluded that Ken Bianchi is able to understand what he is charged with but he has amnesia for the actual incidences during which his body was under the control of Steve Walker. Therefore, he has not been able to discuss his whereabouts, actions, and motives with his attorney since all of that time is completely unknown to him. Allison's bottom line was simple. Therefore, at the present time, I would not consider Ken Bianchi or Steve Walker competent to stand trial for crimes charged. But Robert Knudsen of the Bellingham Police said he was certain Dr. Allison was swayed to see what he wanted to see. Here's Knudsen speaking in a documentary. When he first came here and we were waiting to start a session, we were standing around outside the area talking, and he indicated that it was very important to him to establish this multiple personality because he was close to a world record number of fines of uh, personnel, multiple personalities, and he was in writing a book or had a book going on this topic. And I felt that it was more important to him that, that the multiple personality be found 
Investigators dug into Bianchi's background to find evidence one way or another that Steve had existed before Bianchi unveiled him during his hypnosis session. L.A. Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno. During our interviews of the people that knew Bianchi, his co-workers, his friends, relatives, kids that he'd grown up with, at no time were we able to come up with a personality change or a mood change. Not only that, but investigators learned that Bianchi knew a man named Steve Walker. Steve Walker had been an acquaintance whose college transcripts Bianchi stole to have a degree in psychology. And this mattered not simply because it would help determine whether Bianchi was convicted or not. In fact, that wasn't even the main issue. Angelo Bono was the bigger concern. This gets a little complicated, but the deal is that in California, it was already tricky to use an accomplice's confession to convict somebody else. Such a confession could be entered into evidence, but it had to be corroborated by physical evidence. So let's say you've got one bank robber who says, my buddy helped me rob that bank. He provided the getaway car. The statement on its own was really only useful if there were, say, outside witnesses also describing that same car fleeing the scene. There had to be something else corroborating the accomplice's story. Ken Bianchi, as Steve Walker, was absolutely adamant that he and Angelo killed their victims together. Here he is talking with psychologist John Watkins again. Angelo, he's my kind of person. He just, he doesn't care a fuck about life. It's great. Other people's life. That's great. That's a good attitude to have. Has he killed anybody? Yep. How many? He has. Five girls. Did you watch him kill them all? You bet I did. You can be sure that he killed those five. Positively, without a doubt. That wouldn't have been enough under normal circumstances, but if it turned out that Steve's statements implicating Angela weren't allowed, the tiny bit of circumstantial evidence they had gathered, evidence corroborated by Steve's statements, wouldn't mean anything to the trial. Ken Bianchi might be institutionalized for a time, but Angelo Bono would get off scot-free. In fact, the prosecutor on the case was so certain this was a case-killing problem that he did what many considered unthinkable. He moved to drop the charges against Angelo Bono altogether. The way the legal system works, police are supposed to gather evidence, and prosecutors then weigh that evidence and decide whether to press charges. Usually if a prosecutor decides the evidence gathered isn't enough to make the charges stick, they don't file them in the first place. In some instances, if the evidence seems to weaken with further investigation, they might move to drop the charges that they'd originally filed. And judges usually go along with that. With Ken Bianchi, police and prosecutors in two states, Washington, where Bianchi was arrested for killing two women solo, and California, where he and his cousin were accused of the hillside stranglings, decided they had a win-win situation on their hands by offering Bianchi a plea deal to spare his life. See, in California, there was no death penalty, so the maximum sentence would be life in prison for those cases. But Bianchi's solo murders were in Washington, where the death penalty was very much in play. 
The idea was that if Bianchi pleaded guilty to the Washington cases rather than forcing a trial, law enforcement would avoid risking a jury finding him not guilty by reason of insanity the way that Billy Milligan had been found not guilty. In return, death was taken off the table for Bianchi. Plus, they could then incentivize Bianchi to testify against his cousin, thus having a better chance of also landing Angelo Bono behind bars. After all, they might not have believed that Steve Walker was a separate entity working with Bono on these crimes, but they did believe what he said about having worked alongside his cousin. The idea of Bono getting away with what the two had done was nauseating to investigators. This is Dr. Martin Orn, a psychiatrist with experience treating multiple personality who consulted for the prosecution. In the crimes, he committed terrible things. Torture by slow strangulation, by gas, by injecting with cleaning fluid, by trying to electrocute with the house current. I mean, just terrible things. Imagine having to tell the public that while you believed Bono was guilty of these things, he was going to get away with it. To avoid that, police, prosecutors, and the judge in the case all agreed to the plea deal though investigators had no problem letting Bianchi know how upsetting they found it from an interrogation interview. Just so you know where you and I stand, it really galls me to spare you your life. The only reason we're going through this both as far as I'm concerned is so that we can lock you and Angelo both up forever. You believe in God? Yes, I do. You believe in hell? Uh, yes, I do. Some form of punishment. Better. But the plea deal came before Bono's trial, and after Bianchi's life was spared, his account of what happened in the hillside cases began to veer all over the place. Sometimes he didn't remember them anymore. Sometimes he did, but details changed. The location of the kill, for example, or who precisely did the killing. Assistant prosecutor Roger Kelly, who was overseeing the case, became increasingly concerned that Bianchi would flub everything. Now, Kelly had the option of declaring Bianchi in violation of his plea deal agreement because the deal called for Bianchi to cooperate and testify against Bono. But that's, of course, a little tricky. Prosecutors already have to walk a fine line in plea deals. They have to disclose any incentive a witness has been given to testify. And by revoking a deal because Bianchi's story was changing, Kelly risked a jury interpreting that as him basically bribing Bianchi to tell the story Kelly wanted him to tell. Kelly wasn't in a risk-taking mood. He had higher political goals. So he took another tack. Journalist Bill Curtis in a documentary. The L.A. prosecutors motioned that all charges be dropped against Angelo Bono. The investigators on the case couldn't believe it. LAPD Detective Bob Grogan. I'm in the court when the motion is made by Kelly to deny. I mean, like, I'm sitting there trying to be cool, you know? And it's like the whole world of my whole life is going down the toilet because of this DA who doesn't want to work. The judge didn't rule on the motion that day. He took time to read the related briefs and review the evidence. But spectators thought it was a done deal because no one could remember a time in which a judge didn't approve such a motion. I mean, the alternative was to force the prosecution of a suspect on evidence that prosecutors said they didn't think would hold water. But Judge Ronald George surprised everyone. 
that statute that requires that a judge grant a prosecutor's motion to dismiss only if it's in the interest of justice means, in my opinion, the judge is not supposed to be merely a rubber stamp. And I would never regard myself as a rubber stamp for either the prosecution or the defense. This is George speaking later in an interview. In denying the prosecutor's motion to dismiss charges, he outlined some dozen factors that pointed to the possibility Bono was indeed guilty. It can't be understated how rare this move was. He basically provided a roadmap for prosecutors, and yet he also did so very carefully, wording things in as unbiased a way as possible so that he didn't open himself up to having the case thrown out on appeal. That was probably one of the most difficult decisions I've had to make in 25 years as a judge. Roger Kelly and the other LA prosecutors wisely stepped aside. They'd already gone on record saying they didn't think the case could be won. So while they technically could have gone forward to try the case themselves, they punted to prosecutors with the state attorney general's office. Interestingly, between the time of the punting and the time of the trial, the county prosecutor, Roger Kelly's boss, actually was elected as state attorney general. So the same guy who at one point agreed that the evidence against Bono was insufficient became the boss of the two guys whose job it would be to prosecute Bono with that very same evidence. I'm telling you, man, once upon a time, I would have naively assumed that criminal cases were immune to state politics. I am no longer so stupid. The state prosecutors assigned to the case were Roger Boren and Michael Nash. Like Roger Kelly, they did find it daunting that Kenny Bianchi's memories were constantly changing, but they decided to lean into his inconsistencies rather than try to make sense of them. Michael Nash. The strategy with respect to Kenneth Bianchi was simply to present to the jury uh, everything we knew about him whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, so the jury could see what type of a person they were dealing with. It wasn't the fact that we wanted to say, look, here's a guy that is our star witness, and you have to believe him in order to uh, convict Bono. Instead, they would lay out all the contradicting testimony, but then also present the bits of corroboration they had found along the way. For example, Steve had told investigators that some of the small fibers found on a couple of victims had come from Bono's garage business. Prosecutors had trace evidence experts analyze these fibers, like a tuft of white that had been found on victim Judy Miller's eyelid, and they agreed it was consistent with fibers found in Bono's shop. But there was a problem. Just as the case was finally about to reach trial, the U.S. Supreme Court was weighing a completely separate case that threw into question the admissibility of any testimony gathered during hypnosis sessions. Judge George decided he didn't want to risk the Supreme Court ruling against hypnosis-induced testimony, so he preemptively decided to nix any witness statements given during hypnosis. That actually threatened the prosecution case twofold. For starters, some of the witnesses who told police they had seen two men approach a hillside victim had been hypnotized in hopes of getting them to remember more details about what they had seen. Sometimes they remembered nothing further, but the fact that they were hypnotized at all now precluded them from testifying, period. Not only that, 
but psychologist John Watkins said he had hypnotized Ken Bianchi. It was during hypnosis sessions that Steve, the alter personality, first appeared. So investigators were terrified. Did this mean that everything Bianchi had confessed to as Steve wouldn't be admitted? If so, they were sure that Angelo Bono was about to get away with murder. Any case with forensic experts involved becomes what I call a battle of the experts. For the sake of levity, I'll share that it always reminds me of this line from The Simpsons. All people can come up with statistics to prove anything, Kent. 40% of all people know that. In this case, defense lawyers had found a number of psychiatrists and psychologists who believed that when Kenny Bianchi was hypnotized, he switched to his alter ego, Steve Walker, and shared damning details about how he and his cousin, Angelo Bono, were the Hillside Stranglers. So prosecutors found an expert of their own. To their credit, though, they didn't simply seek out someone who, like some experts who had been available, thought that multiple personality diagnoses were bunk to begin with. They sought out Martin Orne, a psychiatrist and psychologist who was considered an expert in the disorder, as well as in hypnosis and, in layman's terms, brainwashing. Orrin didn't automatically side with prosecutors. In fact, he had recently testified as a defense witness in the case against Patty Hearst, whose story we covered in season one. He testified that newspaper heiress Hearst, who had been kidnapped and eventually joined in crimes committed by her kidnappers, including a high-profile bank robbery, had been brainwashed and wasn't responsible for her actions. Orrin approached Bianchi with skepticism, so he employed a few techniques in hopes of flushing out a faker. Orrin knew about an incident that wasn't related to the killings, but was related instead to allegations from two women who said that Bianchi and Bono forced them to do sex work. A local lawyer had been lonely one night and called an agency that provided such workers. The girl who arrived was one of those two women And for whatever reason, she unloaded her situation on this would-be client. He wasn't a regular user of such services, and apparently had sensed she didn't want to be there, which led him to having a real conversation with her, and she just let loose. She said, hey, I don't really want to do this. I'm being held against my will by these two guys who threatened to kill me, etc., etc. That's not the kind of companionship this lawyer had had in mind for the night, so he helped her escape. He got her a plane ticket out of town, and she never returned to Bono and Bianchi. The two weren't happy about that, so they phoned the lawyer customer and said, Hey, you stole our girl. We're going to mess you up. The lawyer had a few unsavory friends of his own and asked one for a favor. Soon, Bianchi and Bono were visited by a guy nicknamed Tiny who appeared at Bono's garage with some of his biker gang friends. Bono was working on a car detailing it. I kept talking to him. He kept ignoring me. So I reached in the window and jerked him out through the window so fast, so hard, he left his shoes in there. And while I had him up in the air, I asked him if he'd all mind paying attention to me. So while I was dangling him in the air, he paid full attention. So I lowered him back down on the ground. And I gave him one of the lawyer's cards, and I told him, I said, don't be offering to kill him no more. Because the last thing in the world you want is an instant replay of me. Uh, he told me there'd be no more troubles. Bianchi had been there too, said Tiny, who called Kenny a little sniveling poo butt. Bianchi begged Tiny not to hurt him. 
Dr. Orn approached a supposedly hypnotized Bianchi with his tail, but Orn presented it a little wrong. He fumbled around with the tail and acted like he understood the bikers had come after Steve Walker, Bianchi's alter ego. No, you got the wrong person. Angelo. They visited Angelo's shop. I see. I see. But if it was Steve who could remember this, that meant that Steve had been... A little sniveling poo butt. Which meant that he wasn't the tough guy that Steve pretended to be in hypnosis. It should have been Ken who remembered this encounter, not Steve. So this supported the notion that maybe Ken and Steve weren't separate people, but rather that Ken was the pathological liar that so many in his life had accused him of being. Orn did another test too. He introduced the supposedly hypnotized Bianchi to his lawyer, who actually was not in the room. Bianchi played along, shaking the imaginary lawyer's hand and everything. And then Orn brought into the room Bianchi's lawyer for real, and Bianchi did a double take. Hey, he disappeared from over here where I just saw him and reappeared over there. Well, if Bianchi had truly been hypnotized, he should not have noticed the logical fallacy and is a lawyer appearing in two different places. He should have been under Orn's influence and simply flowed with the illogical scenario with which he'd been presented. So Orn testified that Bianchi was faking being hypnotized. Judge George ruled that he agreed, and while all hypnotized witness testimony was banned, Bianchi's was admitted because, the judge agreed, he hadn't really been hypnotized at all. Bianchi testified for 80 damn days. The confession portions of his testimony were bolstered by forensic analysis of the fibers found on a couple of the victims. Now, to confuse things further, while Bono's trial was pending, Bianchi started a relationship with a sort of fangirl who said she wanted to understand him because she was writing a play from the killer's point of view. The woman, Veronica Compton, eventually was convicted of trying to kill another woman in Washington state in the same manner that Bianchi's two solo victims were killed to cast doubt on his guilt in those cases. She testified in Bono's trial that she and Bianchi had tried to frame Bono in the hillside stranglings too, but that Bono really had nothing to do with those crimes. It was all just as confusing as it sounds. Meanwhile, Bono's lawyers tried to soften their client's image. Sure, he liked young women and he liked anal sex, but surely society wasn't so prudish as to condemn someone based on their sexual desires alone. To that end, Bono's lawyer called one of his past girlfriends to the stand to testify that Angelo could never have hurt a woman because he had always been so gentle with her. When she resisted anal sex, he didn't force her. Why would a guy who had politely accepted no for an answer have forced himself on these other victims who had been viciously assaulted? It's clear, the defense argued, that Bianchi was the one and only hillside strangler. But introducing that past lover backfired. The prosecution immediately called to the stand Sabra Hennen, who told of her enslavement as a prostitute at the hands of Bianchi and Bono. A parade of women followed, all of whom testified that Angelo Bono abused them. Between that and the forensic analysis... It was just like a puzzle coming together, any cat. Juror Sheila Green. After he put in one piece, another piece, and it all came together, they had a good case. Jurors convicted Bono on nine of the ten counts of murder he had faced. 
The only one they acquitted him of was the first victim, Yolanda Washington, because there hadn't been additional corroborative evidence proving he'd done it alongside Bianchi. Both Bono and Bianchi were sentenced to life in prison. Bono's sentence is done. He died of a heart attack in September 2002. Bianchi, meanwhile, is still in prison. As of this recording, he's in the Washington State Penitentiary. He's 71 years old and has filed repeated motions and lawsuits claiming he's innocent. As recently as 2019, he told a reporter that he has spent 40 years in jail slash prison for crimes he didn't commit. He no longer bases his claims of innocence on his supposed multiple personality disorder, but rather, he says, he's not guilty at all. He only confessed, he said, to spare himself the death penalty. To research this story, I did all the stuff I said on part one, and I also read the fascinating book, The Minds of Billy Milligan, which has nothing to do with this case directly, but to show how one unrelated case can influence another, which is one of the premises of this podcast, that's the case I'll focus on next episode. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>